0: Does the word faith really mean what we think it means? This is the Bible Reset podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, here Glenn Powell. We're also glad to be joined by Matthew Bates for the final part of our mini series on the gospel to talk through some of the ideas around a proper Christian response to the gospel and what that might look like. Matthew is an associate professor of theology at Quincy University and author of several books, including Salvation by Allegiance Alone, The Gospel Precisely, and Gospel Allegiance. He also co-hosts Script, a Bible and theology podcast. Matthew thanks for joining us Alex Glenn hey thanks thanks for having me so we have a trish, tradition on here the first question we always like to ask our guests is just kind of their personal story with the Bible the personal history with it how they came to know it how they came to appreciate it so so what's your story so you think I appreciate the Bible?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> We're hoping. Um, it's um, a hunch.
1: Yeah, I am, I am a professor of theology, and my, my main area is Bible. Um, so yeah, I um, have a deep love for scripture that was fostered over a long period of time. Um, my story with scripture actually begins with my mother, and um, she uh, was a pious, um, kind of personal faith. No, we weren't really churchgoers, but she was devout, um, and she wanted me to memorize scripture. and. Mm. I did that from a very young age. Um, So some of my first memories actually, in fact, would involve uh, memorizing scripture. So uh, she wanted me to hide the word of God in my heart um, and Mm. uh, wanted me to have a personal faith in Jesus and encouraged me in that direction. And I also remember from a very young age, um, you know, um, you know, as it was termed, especially back in those days, right, this would have been the early eighties for me. You know, I remember praying to accept Jesus into my heart. I still remember the couch. I was sitting on when I prayed, and I remember weeping. Um, even mm. actually at that age, I don't know if it was just that I thought something monumental was happening, or if it was some act of the Holy Spirit. Um, just uh, as a way of um, giving me something to hold on to later in life. I have no idea. Um, but I remember being very emotional. Um, so uh, that's how I first encountered Scripture, and then um, but as I mentioned, we weren't really churchgoers, so that sort of faded in time. Um, that is until um, sixth grade, um, there was a, a tragedy with a family friend who was paralyzed in a mill accident. And um, when he at, was able to actually come through this um, hospitalization and um, this sort of intense battle with his body, um, he never walked again, um, but he, um, he, he discovered Jesus in the hospital. And, um. Um, and that, that really impacted our family as um, his testimony through his testimony. We started going to church. His name was Doyle oil in sandy canada so um that got us involved in church and it was a very fundamentalist king james only um conservative um as all get out church now i'm conservative and traditionally minded but um maybe not in the king james only sort of way (laughs) (laughs) um And, uh, yeah, so that, that was, um, I've been trying to work through some of that, I suppose, in my, my subsequent journey, but one of the advantages of being at that kind of church was that scripture was absolutely prioritized, um, Mm -hmm. you know, along with the mantra, like, well, we just read scripture literally, no matter that nobody knew what that actually meant. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but nevertheless, that was the mantra. And so, you know, I was encouraged to read scripture, um, you know, with that experience and. And also the, these people involved with in this church, I mean, they genuinely love Jesus. I mean, they may have had some weird ideas intellectually about how to put together the faith that yeah, could, could cause um, challenges for people later in life. But uh, boy, did they love the Lord. Mm. And um, that's maybe the most important thing of all. Right. Um, there you go. So, yeah. And uh, so through that experience, I, I continued to, to have a love for Scripture. But again, I had no idea how to read it. Um, And it wasn't really until I got to college, um, my undergraduate experience at Whitworth University, um, when I took a course on the New Testament from um, Dr. Roger Morling, that I um, really fell in love with scripture and realized also that it was an intellectual challenge. I was doing a physics degree and I thought, well, that was the hardest thing you could do in my mind. Um, And then I got into my scripture class and I realized I had no idea how to read the Bible, even though I'd been reading it for years. And um, it kind of awakened me to the intellectual challenge of of, um, you know, not just theology, but ph- philosophy as it connects to all that. And and maybe that all the things that I thought physics could deliver, um, maybe it wouldn't deliver for me um, in terms of knowing. So, yeah, all those things were swirling around as part of my growing love for the Bible, which, you know, I went, went on from there to seminary at Regent College and then did PhD work at University of Notre Dame. Uh, so uh, all those together, like uh, an, an ongoing love for scripture and s- obviously still love it today. Teach it.
2: Wow, that's great. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to thank you for your books. We've uh, been reading them in our book club and just appreciate your fresh perspective. So that's what we're looking forward to talking about today. Uh, Matthew, we've been embarking on a little series here on the Bible Reset podcast about the nature of the gospel and our response to it. So first we took a look at some fascinating evidence that even before the early Christians started announcing the good news about Jesus, the Roman Empire had its own version of the gospel. I think a lot of people have not realized that Rome used words like savior, son of God, and even gospel when talking about Caesar and all the good things he brought into the world. So then we looked at the difference between the King Jesus gospel and what Scott McKnight calls the Soterian message that has characterized so much of evangelicalism. So today we thought your would be the your your books and and the ideas you've presented there would be kind of the perfect third um, presentation in this series. Um, and we want to talk about allegiance and how that fits into all of this. One thing that we didn't mention in our episode on the Roman Gospel, which I knew about, but we just didn't include it. Um, But there's this, like, loyalty oath that was a thing in the Roman Empire, and there's an example of one that apparently was found uh, in Thessalonica, and we thought it would be especially relevant to bring it up today. So it goes like this. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants, throughout my life in word, deed, and thought, and in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea." That's like an amazing statement, right, of like giving everything you have to protect the name and the, the body of Caesar. So apparently acknowledging the gospel of Rome and the good news of the salvation Caesar brought to the world carried with it this kind of tangible commitment or loyalty to Caesar by his subjects. So I guess my question is, is it right to think more generally that this is the expected response in the ancient world when someone was declared to be king or ruler? Yes.
1: (laughs) I can give a a very short answer, but I, I can elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, Yeah, certainly um, the resonance of loyalty to leadership um, is something that's been true throughout history, right? Or the demand for loyalty, Um, you know, when we're in our current democracies, that can be more complicated as people Mm -hmm. are like loyal to a party, right? More than they are um, to, you know, a specific single ruler. But when you have a ruler over your country, a single one, or yes, certainly loyalty was expected and demanded. And this connects more broadly to the framework of patronage in um, the Greco-Roman world, mm. um, that the Caesar was the one who was the great patron, like he brings benefits to the world. And um, so part of that means like, if you, how do you respond to the patron in order to receive the benefits? Well, it's your main response is pistis or faith or l- what's, what's traditionally been called faith. Uh, the word pistis in the New Testament has traditionally been translated faith, um, but it's um, Uh, it's a broader word than at least our current use of faith. Now, back in the King James time period, like faith did have more overtones of of loyalty or fidelity, Um, but we've tended to lose that meaning or to kind of shear it off. And I think some of that um, maybe comes from certain kinds of anxieties um, in Catholic Protestant discussions. Now, I'm, of course, a Protestant, um, but uh, nevertheless, I've trained with Catholics um, Mm. and I feel like I'm fairly conversant with the Catholic perspective on this, all this. Anyway, yes, uh, lo- loyalty um is certainly something that leaders um expected and demanded in the in the Greco-Roman world.
2: Yeah, that's a you bring up another topic which we can't go into now, but it's an interesting one about how words sometimes in our English Bibles which carried bigger overtones or even different meanings at the time they were translated, right, were centuries later, and sometimes we've developed our own kind of maybe smaller meaning of those words. And yes. even though it's the same word, it can change. And we think we're understanding one thing, and it originally meant something else, even in English, right?
1: Yeah. That's, yeah. that's even, a fascinating... Even the word belief, for instance, in yeah. English. Yeah, if you go back and look at um, early uses of that in, you know, Tyndale's Bible and things like Anyway, it, it involved ideas that were closer, again, to loyalty or had those overtones in a way that, yeah, not, not so much today.
0: Well, uh, well, Matthew, uh, Glenn mentioned earlier that he and I are in a book club we meet at a Panera on Friday morning. We're always reading theology books and that sort of thing. And that's where we first encountered your work with Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And um, a few members of our group are come from a background similar to what you described, a little bit more fundamentalist background and that sort of thing. So when we when we started diving into Salvation by Allegiance Alone, it was pretty provocative and maybe Mm -hmm. a little disorienting. And, uh, you know, given the prominence of the phrase salvation by faith alone and kind of the, the centrality of that for a lot of evangelical theology, it seems like your title was kind of intentionally provocative in that way, trying to maybe subvert some things that, that Christians hold near and dear. So can you just talk about what you're trying to do with that book?
1: yeah so yeah the title salvation by allegiance alone is provocative right yeah. and um yeah definitely um intentionally wanting to riff off of the 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 you know faith alone slogan that is very pro- uh, prominent in certain circles um and uh, wanting to say like do we know what that word even means mm-hmm. right is uh, is the you know sort of the underlying message of the book but Really, in Salvation by Allegiance alone, I'm I'm most clearly working with two theses that I think um, come together to kind of drive the book. The first is that I think we've misunderstood what the gospel is, and you've already been chatting with Scott McKnight about that. I, I would be very much in Scott's camp. Um, and that really, the, the way that I would frame it might be slightly different than Scott, but with the same outcome, right, that uh, mm. we're talking about the King Jesus gospel. Um, but I, I really, I, I frame it as um, really a narrative about Jesus that um, that the apostles preached, um, and that it's not about our personal justification by faith. Like um, I would understand, like our faith response to be like something that is demanded by the gospel, but is is separate from the gospel. And on the other hand, justification is a benefit of the gospel, um, and neither are strictly gospel itself. The gospel is about what Jesus did, not what we get um, in, in, in terms of individually, like it's about what Jesus has done for the group, right? We do come to participate in the group individually, but that's really the focus of attention is what Jesus has done for his people and bringing salvation. Mm. So I, I would talk about the gospel in terms of, you know, beginning with the father sending the son, he takes on human flesh in the line of David. So the incarnation. And specifically the fulfillment of the Davidic promises that Jesus dies for our sins and that for our sins, right? As he dies for our sins on the cross, he's bringing benefits for the group, whoever whoever comes to be part of the king's group, right? And then, um, you know, of course, he's buried and then he's raised on the third day. This is all according to scriptural pattern and then seen by many witnesses. And then he's raised, um, uh, then he's exalted to the right hand of God, Right. And that's this exaltation of the right hand of God is where I really think the New Testament actually centers the energy. So that's one of of the things I'm trying to do in Salvation by Allegiance alone is help readers appreciate that the New Testament, as it speaks about the gospel, really emphasizes that's the moment where Jesus becomes the Christ in power, where he Mm -hmm. begins to rule. Like up and before that time, he's been chosen as the Christ, uh, been anointed as the Christ, but he doesn't actually have a throne. He doesn't rule in an active way yet and at least not over the heavens and the earth, right? In the wow. full sense yeah. that he does. Hmm. Yeah. And so trying to, trying to help people appreciate that portion of the gospel. And then of course Jesus will return, right? That's all part of the gospel too and bring judgment. Um, but, um, but then finally, then the second piece is the, is to kind of say, okay, if that's the gospel, let's, let's rethink what this word faith means and what does it mean to respond to a Christ, someone who's enthroned at the right hand of God and sovereign over heaven and earth especially in the first century, what would it have meant to respond to a Christ? It would have mainly been to respond with pistis, but not in the sense just of believing something or even just trusting something, but Mm. going beyond that to an embodied trust um, that would be closer to our language of allegiance or fidelity. And then showing that that actually is is something that we find in that that time period, that we find pistis as loyalty all over the place. So that is a common use of that word.
2: Wow. A lot of things there. One, one that thing that struck me as you described that, Matthew, is kind of the parallel with the story of King David, right? Anointed, mm-hmm. but not yep. yet on his throne. There was yeah. this in-between time when he was, like, announced, if you will, as the next king, but not yet having a throne. I think yeah. it's fascinating there's a parallel with, with Jesus there. And
1: yeah, that's a great observation. It, yeah,
2: it's it's interesting how you you know I mean you just spent some time saying well here's kind of a shorthand version of the story of Jesus, the major elements of his story, and that is the gospel. And it does seem strange to me that we've when when you say to people, well, you know, I made a gospel presentation or I heard a gospel presentation at church today, um, that's not what we think of when people say that I, you're going to tell somebody the gospel. You know, we have this other formula thing that we've kind of developed and it has its standard elements, but we've kind of forgotten, right? That like the stories of Jesus were named by the early church, the gospels, right? That's what they would have said the gospel is. It's this story of Jesus that has all these elements that you mentioned. And then also one thing just... Um, when we were doing our presentation on the King Jesus gospel, we talked about all those early presentations, messages, um, speeches in the, the book of Acts, and how yeah. they invariably included kind of this shorthand story of the high points of the life of Jesus. So they're yeah. telling his story in a particular way, and then leading to certain conclusions. Um, Seems like it'd be a great first step to just get back to thinking of that as the gospel, maybe rather than this formula that we've developed. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, our podcast is focused on the Bible. You know, we're the Bible reset, and every episode explores some element of what it means to read and live it well. In your case, a lot of people might immediately have the question wait, the Bible passages I know are very, very clear about the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So there's this huge question about the word faith, which you've already begun to talk about a little bit, but also this thing, it's not by works. And doesn't loyalty kind of slide over into um, things you have to do? You talked about embodied or enacted kind of loyalty or obedience, allegiance. Um, Aren't you bringing works into the, the faith formula and kind of threatening this foundational Thing, like the Ephesians passage and others that talk about being saved by faith. Um, so let's talk some more about what that word really means and yeah. and how to understand these passages that seem so clear the way we read them in English.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so the Ephesians passage is uh, obviously a classic passage about salvation, um, but it's also not the gospel. And mm. there's sometimes been confusion around that point. Paul doesn't say that's the gospel. Interesting. right? Um, when Paul defines the gospel, right, in, in the beginning of Romans, right, where he talks about the, the, you know, the gospel of God promised in advance, that it pertains to Jesus you know, being enfleshed in the line of David and then being installed at, as son of God in power or which would be you know connected to his enthronement ultimately and that mm-hmm. through that the spirit rules uh, he says at the beginning of, of of Romans, right? And then when he defines the gospel, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, it's about the Christ, you know, his, his death for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, his appearances. So it's, sometimes there's an assumption that this is the gospel, but it isn't. But that doesn't mean it's not important, right? It right. means this is still very important for understanding our salvation. But yeah, the terms used um, are often, I think, not appreciated in a first century context. They're oftentimes... Um, I think, um, like, maybe work through the framework of the Reformation too strongly without, Mm. like, without exploring did the Reformation itself um, get back to the first century accurately. So um, I think there's a lot of scholars who have done good work to help us get farther back, right? Um, Scholars who have done work on grace, like John Barclay. Um, mm. And those who have done work on salvation, like N.T. Wright, you know, um, have helped us appreciate new dimensions here. So when we talk about this specifically for by grace, you've been saved through faith. Um, actually, Paul's already defined grace um, in, um, you know, that's his Ephesians 2.8. He's already mentioned it in 2.5. Um, and he, when he does so, he talks about um, actually how it's connected to the enthronement of Jesus um, and that we are um, participants then um, in uh, as Jesus has in his death and his resurrection and his enthronement, like we 're united with him and seated at the right hand alongside of him, so it refers to specific gospel events. Um, we tend to abstract grace and think like, well, what it means is it means like just I get what i don 't deserve right um, or something like that. Um, the reality is that 's not how Paul generally uses it. He usually has a historic understanding. Um, that God gave a gift, grace is gift language, God gave a gift to his people when they didn't deserve it 2,000 years ago. Like it's the, it, the gift is actually the gift of the king. Right. And that we can then be united with the king. That's the gift. It's something that's actually concrete hmm. within history, not just an abstract kind of thing. So when he says "for by grace," I would understand that to be by the gift of the gospel, right? By which you can be enthroned alongside mm, Jesus, mm. right? Um, you have been saved. Now that saved language actually is um, complicated language in the Greek. It's actually what's well, called a perfect tense in the Greek, um, and uh, it involves both like a present and an an ongoing dimension. So the idea is like you have been saved in the past, but you're, there's an ongoing effect. So. Mm. Um, And then through faith, we assume that's our faith often in thinking about this passage. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And we think that's our faith. Actually, it could be Jesus's faithfulness. Um, And so it could be referring to Jesus's fidelity. And scholarship is split on that. So it could be for grace, you've been saved through faithfulness of Jesus, like that it's Jesus's faithfulness. And support for that view actually comes from the next verse saying, and this is not from yourselves meaning you didn't do anything to bring it about. Jesus did. Jesus is the one through his faithfulness uh, who brought about salvation. Now, you know, regardless of whether it's our faith or Jesus's faithfulness in that passage, um, nevertheless, I think we would want to say like, certainly at the end of the day, like we do need to give our loyalty or pledge our allegiance to Jesus or uh, have faith in him in some way. Right. Uh, and anyway, what Paul goes on from there, it is the gift of God, not by works. Um, if you explore Ephesians carefully, um, and Paul's letters carefully Paul abbreviates um, works for a larger phrase frequently works of law works of Torah um, and he does this for instance in Romans chapter 9 he abbreviates he does it in Romans chapter 3 um, and there's a strong case to be made that Paul here means works of Torah works of law although he said works he's just abbreviated like he does other places right and this actually comes from Ephesians like what comes right after that When Paul then says, "Therefore," uh, and and after this passage begins to talk about circumcision and the abolition of circumcision's significance as God is wanting to create one family, that would suggest he he has mostly circumcision kind of things in view, which would be works of Torah. Um, So Paul's point might be like in this context that um, that salvation is is a a, you know a gift given in time, right? That we're saved by um, the like faith, or which we could understand in more of a loyalty direction. It's the gift of God, not by works of Torah like circumcision in order that no one may boast and that this boasting language mm. connects to especially ethnic boasting yeah. um, that the the Jews believed that they had a boast because they had the law and the Gentiles did not. For instance, for we are his workmanship created in, in the Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once we understand what faith is, that it's actually fidelity or loyalty, one way to think about it is that uh, Paul's understanding of faith was that it was externalized and embodied. It was not a relational term. Um, so that we tend to think that it's just mental trust. Paul would not have thought about it in that way very often. It um, does involve a mental component for Paul, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis tends to be on embodied, yeah. external, relational things. Yeah.
2: You're talking so much about context. It's almost like you believe we're not supposed to read isolated Bible verses out of context. Is that true?
1: <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess if you say so, Glenn. <laughs> I just,
2: you know, that's one of our hobby horses here is we just think it, it so often can derail people when they just take a verse from anywhere and read it in isolation. And you're talking so much about the context of the letter here in Ephesians, other writings of Paul. So yeah, just a plug, you know, we often say read whole books and understand yeah. the parts in light of the whole. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that good word.
0: Hey, Bible Reset listeners, I'm excited to say that we're coming up on our 50th episode. So as a way to mark the occasion, we're planning to make episode 50 an all Q&A episode. So whether you've just started listening to the show or if you've been listening since the beginning, feel free to send us a question and we'll pick some to answer during the show. To submit a question, head to thebiblereset.com, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and you'll see a contact form that you can use to submit your question. We look forward to hearing from you. Now back to the show. I wouldn't blame some of our listeners if they're kind of sweating or maybe gripping their uh, <laughs> their armchair a little bit more tightly. This is maybe some disorienting stuff a little bit, just um, challenging some of the things that we've taken for granted for a long time. And So there's this review of your book in Christianity Today, and the author of the review worries that you might be defining faith by what it entails, by things like obedience and by loyalty. And he says that you're kind of collapsing the biblical package of things like faith and works and love and obedience into this kind of singular concept of kingship, kingship, and that that's a distortion of the gospel. So how would you reply to his critique?
1: Yeah, that was, I think, the review written by Kelly Capek, K- uh, K- um, or Capic. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure you say his last name, actually. Um, yeah. Um- yeah, one of the things about reviews is you know you're always grateful as a re- as, as an author yeah. you're grateful for any and every review and uh, every yeah. reader, right? I'm always thankful, mm. um, and you know, and you 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 know expect there to be um, critical and appreciative dialogue both, both directions. Mm. Um, interestingly, um, K. Pick wrote me after that um, review came out personally and apologized for it. Um, partly mm. because it came out much more negative. Apparently Christianity Today cut some of the other oh, <laughs> things he yeah. said. Um, oh, really? So, uh, you know, I don't know if Christianity Today was trying to create conversation there mm. or exactly what what happened. Um, but yeah, be that as it may, I, I, of course, hold no no ill will toward um, KPIC as it, it um, you know, I appreciate him as a, as a, a reader. But I also don't think that critique has a lot of weight. Um, in Christianity Today, he gave no evidence at all for for such a, a, a view of, of, of you know my book. I mean, he just sort of asserts it, that I may be doing mm. this, but he I mean, doesn't actually show any evidence that I did, in fact, do it. Mm. Not a single, not a <laughs> single thing. Um, nor did mm. he cite any Bible passages, which would prove that I did it. Um, so, you know, to, to a degree, I mean, well, maybe he did more, and Christianity Today caught it, I have no idea. Um, but I would say that... Um, that that is probably a misunderstanding of faith. And I would pressure Capic to go back, um, and to say, and to, and I think we can prove and that I do prove in this book, but other scholars do even more that the word faith means loyalty. Hmm. Um, doesn't hmm. always mean it, but in, 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 in the new Testament world, it means loyalty and means it frequently. Hmm. Um, so, uh, to sort of say that like, well, he's just collapsing, you know, like loyal, lo- lo- obedience and loyalty together. Um, well, and the, really, what I'm trying to do is I'm actually trying to preserve, the I think, the distinction. Mm. Um, as Paul, for instance, in Romans 1.5, talks about the obedience of faith. He does so again in Romans 16.26. Um, and the obedience of faith would be understood by um, people, especially in Capix's stream. He's, um, he would be in the Reformed kind of Calvinist stream. Um, They've traditionally been understanding that phrase to be like, well, what, happen, what must happen first is that you have faith. And then only after you have faith, then you're justified. And once you're justified, then the Holy Spirit can come and help you. And so then you can be obedient. Um, so there's there's kind of a program that's been packaged into that phrase mm. of the obedience of faith. The reality is, is Paul just says the obedience of faith. Um, and so th- it's, actually a, it's actually lexically an improbable translation to say that it's the obedience that comes from faith. You'll find a couple translations doing mm. that, like maybe the old NIV might have done it that way. Yeah. Uh, but mm. it's actually lexically improbable because it's a rare category of what's called the genitive um, in uh, in Greek. So a much more probable um, understanding of that passage would be something adjectival, um, something mm. like um, the the whenever we're talking about the obedience of faith, it's faithful obedience or loyal obedience is what Paul says the purpose of the gospel is. Mm. So when Paul mm. gives us the purpose of the gospel in Romans one five and in Romans sixteen twenty six. He actually says that it's it's something like loyal obedience, and I I wouldn't see myself as collapsing somehow that into faith. Mm. Um, I would see that as all part of um, what Paul's trying to express. But like, what characteristic does obedience end up taking? Well, one that's postured by a loyalty or by fidelity. So I'd want to pressure Capic to do a little more yeah. um, homework on um, yeah on on the word pistis, uh, especially Teresa Morgan her her 500 page monograph. Um, written by uh, published by Oxford University Press. She's a, a professor of classics at Oxford. Um, she would very much support my view um, that it that it can mean loyalty. Yeah.
2: Wow. Hey, that's uh, I noticed you said Romans one and Romans sixteen. So those are bookends, right? The beginning and the end. Yeah. So that's fascinating that Paul begins and ends his letter to the Romans, which is where you could say most people would say that's where they get the idea that the gospel is justification by faith, right? That actually. The 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 words that surround the whole letter are the obedience of faith. Yeah,
1: That's... and Paul never says the gospel is justification by faith, not once in any of his letters anywhere. Yeah. Um, what what he, he speaks a lot about justification by faith in Galatians, right? And there's a lot of concern about false gospel in Galatians, and so what happens is people make the link. Um, the The truth of the matter, I think, if we're going to be very precise, is that justification is a benefit of the gospel. And a benefit given to the community, right? But then we, by faith or allegiance, as we declare allegiance to the king, we enter into the justified community and begin to enjoy the benefit. So it's very important to Paul's understanding of salvation. Don't get me wrong. That just doesn't, that doesn't mean it's the gospel. Paul never says it's the gospel. Um, And I think that we can be more exacting by saying that justification is a result of the gospel. Um, and that faith is the entry point into the benefit that um, that comes from the gospel. Yeah,
2: that's great. And it's I mean, part of this is just being careful with language and, and kind of using it the way the Bible does. Right. I mean, following the scriptures and what they mean when they use these words. that That's yeah.
1: great. And doing so in a yeah. And doing so in a first century rather than a 16th century. Framework, there you go. I think there you go. that's the key. OK, so yeah. kind
2: of related to that. Uh, It seems to me that this, like, exploration of allegiance that you're doing here and related words like gospel and so forth, uh, it's an example of how continued careful reading and reflection on the Bible can help us refine and strengthen the faith that's been handed down to us. So it can be an uncomfortable thing, right? And sometimes disorienting, as Alex has been mentioning. But I assume you would say, this is kind of our responsibility as Bible readers and Christ followers. And this is kind of the way it's supposed to go, right? We keep, we keep testing what we say and do and believe by the scriptures.
1: Yeah, that's right. That was one of the main slogans of the Reformation was Semper Reformanda, always reforming, mm. um, that there was a sense that the reformers knew that they hadn't completed the work that they needed to do. They just instigated it, right? Yeah. And that there would be an ongoing need to refine and to recover and that's why it's so critical that we don't just get locked in, you know, to the 16th century, but we go back to the first century because that's what they were trying to right. do, right? We're, we're um, following the spirit of the Reformation, right? Whenever we continue to refine the results of the Reformation, um, which doesn't mean the reformers were entirely wrong or that anything that went before that was entirely wrong. We just keep, we keep testing, yeah. right? We keep, we keep being good scripture readers. Um, Yeah. So I would see that it certainly is to strengthen the faith um, that um, understanding allegiance to Jesus is something that um, hopefully will help us to realize that um, our ongoing posture of loyalty to Jesus matters. Right. That it's not just about praying a prayer one time um, or something like that. Now, when you do initially give your loyalty to Jesus, when you when you when you fully entrust yourself to him, meaning you're giving your life over to him fully in service to him. Right, well, then that is the moment where you enter salvation. You can say, "I'm saved, yeah." right um, That's appropriate to say because you've entered into that community that is the community of the saved. Right? Um, but that doesn't mean that work is completed, right? As we, we must persist yes. uh, in co- making that confession that Jesus is the king. We have to persevere in it.
0: Yeah, that's good. And as you've been talking, I've had a lot of kind of just for some reason, marriage sort of imagery coming to mind. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like a very similar relationship where you don't just kind of say your vows and then it's like a one-time thing, right? It's an ongoing relationship of loyalty and allegiance and faithfulness. Like you don't just kind of mentally assent to the fact that you got married once um, without kind of just this ongoing relationship with your spouse. Is that Kind yeah, of that's helpful. Analogy. Yeah, that's helpful.
1: And I'll, I'll plug um, some other work that's been done on faith by Nije Gupta, um, as he wrote a book called Paul and the Language of Faith. I think that's the name of it with Erdman's. Um, okay. it's, it has Paul and Faith in the title. Mm. Uh, but anyway, he really does front the covenantal framework for, mm. um, for how at least some of this Pistis language was understood in the time period of the New Testament. That it was very much informed by the covenant. And so it means covenantal loyalty, right? And, mm. It comes close to the meaning of, in, in Hebrew, the term chesed right? Which is mm. covenant love, right? That the term pistis um, with the Greek term and the, the Hebrew term emunah, um, they, they're closely related to chesed in some places and do, do resonate with, um, yeah, the idea that you're responding to a covenant with, with fidelity or with loyalty. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So it's similar to a marriage covenant, right? And of course, the New Testament encourages mm-hmm. that imagery for us to think right. about Jesus as the, the groom and us as the bride. Yep. Yep, exactly.
0: Cool. So we always like to try to bring this all back around as far as, uh, you know, kind of practical implications for the church. So when we shift the way that we define faith slash pistis, what do you think the implications are within the church and what kind of practical differences can it make uh, in our Christian life together? Yeah,
1: the number one there um, is that discipleship is fronted in a whole Mm, fresh way, right? That we we have tended to think falsely that first we need to get people saved. Right. Um, in the sense of like making a salvation decision that they're trusting the, the atonement, right? They're trusting that Jesus is sent death for their sins is really effective. And then once they've trusted that, then they're like saved. And then we like try to plug them into a discipleship program so they can grow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that salvation, once we realize that um, faith means something more like loyalty or allegiance, of course you do make that initial allegiance declaration. Right. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, actually what early Christian baptism meant Mm. um, was that you were calling upon the name of the Lord. Right. Um, This calling upon the name of the Lord as part of your baptism was um, an oath of allegiance to him. Um, Alan Street, actually, in a very interesting book called Caesar and the Sacrament demonstrates this. um, And he shows connections between loyalty oaths um, and between early Christian baptism. It's a fascinating book. Um, Mm. Anyway, I think this is what you were doing is you were declaring your loyalty to Jesus when you got baptized. Um, and so, um, yeah, that the ongoing outworking of that posture of, of, of loyalty or allegiance, right, was what the, the fabric, the very fabric of the Christian life. So to come to Jesus, right, and to acknowledge him as your king means like you're wanting to be instructed by him. You're, you're coming mm. to see what his life is like. You're wanting to live in light of his kingship in the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving directions for what it means to be a citizen mm. of his kingdom, Right. And you are you're trying to embrace that program. You're trying like you're saying, OK, if God is in the business of bringing about this new reign and Jesus is the king who's who's instituting it, uh, what's it going to be like to be in step with the king? Right. So Christian salvation comes to be about discipleship. Surprise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. As, yeah. Um, Crazy. As uh, as uh, it does involve an initial commitment to Jesus's kingship. Um, but it's not just about believing that Jesus's death is effective. That's too limited a view of the gospel and not faithful to the New Testament. That's not what the New Testament teaches about either the gospel or about what it means to respond to the gospel. So hmm. it, it removes that short circuit and helps us to see why Jesus's words about discipleship and why Jesus says following him is necessary, right, for salvation. It helps us to make sense of all that and to begin to see like, okay, I, I see how all these things hang together, discipleship, justification. Faith like they all begin to kind of fit together in one cohesive package once we realize it's about Jesus kingship. So I Mm -hmm. I see it. um, It's its main gift to the church or main application for the church would be um, fronting discipleship in a whole fresh way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It all feels much more integrated in this model. So I think that that would be a gift to the church if we could kind of take up the mantle and, and get serious about that. Cool. Well, uh, well, thanks so much for joining us, Matthew. Like you've said, uh, it's so important to be gospel centered. And sometimes we can get off track a little bit with with maybe what that means. And so it's so important to just keep reforming those ideas, keep leaning on scholars like you and the others that you've mentioned to to dig into the biblical texts and, and make sure that we have good definitions of these things like like gospel and, and faith so that we can have this coherent gospel centered, uh, sort of faith allegiance centered Christian life. So we appreciate you joining us.
1: Thanks Alex. Thanks, yeah, Glenn. Great to
2: have you.
0: Awesome. Well, we encourage our listeners to go check out some of Matthew's books on the topic and, uh, and read more deeply on the concepts of gospel and faith and allegiance and salvation. So I'll put some links to those books in the show notes and you can go check them out. As always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.